Stanford University. Uh, let me now introduce as the introducer to our today's speaker, uh, James Adams. Uh, Jim is a professor emeritus uh, in the School of Engineering, um, of Industrial Engineering, Engineering Management, and Mechanical Engineering. The word engineering keeps popping up in all of these situations. And we're very happy to welcome you, Jim, to, the, to this platform and to have you introduce our speaker, Paul Brest. You don't have to clap for me, you have to clap for Paul. <laughs> um, I just, these days of the internet, I don't compete with the internet. Uh, if you go to the internet and put in something like tribute to Paul Breast, Stanford University or something, uh, you will find that you get the kind of verbiage that most people have to die first to get. Uh, so I will not try to compete with that. Uh, I wanted to just say a few things around about Paul. Um, I'm going to preface it by saying I came here in 1966, uh, a happy, simple person out of aerospace, and had to redo almost all of my values. How many of you have been or are affiliated with the law school? Well, one of my values was to not like lawyers, because they're threatening to engineers because their language is even more impenetrable than engineering jargon. and. Uh, but I changed that absolutely through meeting people in the law school. And if you've been around a while, these were people like Friedenthal and Myers and Kaplan. And I changed to liking all lawyers. But I especially liked Paul Brest. Where did Paul Brest go? There he is. Um, so I made a list of things that make me like him. And I'll just read you the list. Uh, I boil this down from about 1,200 items. First of all, I've never been able to detect any evil in him. He seems to be seeking good and getting it. And any of you who have been a dean, since he was dean for about 12 years, realize this takes a fairly rare person to pull off. Secondly, as far as philanthropy, he walks the walk as well as talking the talk. He is a philanthropist, uh, especially notable around string quartets. He's a generous person. Three, he's interested in problem solving and creativity, and so am I. Um, and if you look through the information on the internet, he had a very large impact while he was dean as far as the law school changing directions. And as I remember raising what at that amount of time was a shocking amount of money to do so. Four, he's interested in many, many things. For instance, he's the only constitutional lawyer I know who has a commercial pilot's license and is a serious student of playing the viola. viola. Um, he's also a dispenser of wisdom. And I can give you a couple anecdotes where he's made me think personally. He probably didn't know it. I remember when he got his job as president of the Hewlett Foundation, he was rhapsodizing one time about how wonderful it was to be giving away money instead of trying to raise money. And I'd been in the engineering school so long, I thought it was natural that you are supposed to beg instead of give. And so I thought about this and got deeply depressed. Um, I was pulled out by one of my friends in the humanity. Uh, in the PhD hood, there's a funny rectangular thing down at the bottom. Do you know what that is? It's a remnant of a coin purse. Because in the good old days, you could wander around and people would drop coins in your Hood. 
I think that's nice. Uh, <laughs> I tried it on University Avenue and babies cried and, and people looked at me strangely so it doesn't work. The second one, um, as far as dispenser of wisdom, another thing he told me when he was first joining the Hewlett Foundation, big smile, do you know what it takes to be president of a major foundation? Do you know what you have to be? He said, and I said, no, what? And he said, a dilettante. <laughs> well, I thought, hey, that's what I am. And at that time, I couldn't admit it because I was a professor. And fortunately, now I can be interdepartmental or interbehavioral or whatever. But he provokes thought in a nice way. And then the final, the final thing I admire about him is his uh, choice of housemate, Iris. Raise your hand, Iris. <laughs> uh, just an Iris story to give you a sense of the way I see the breasts. Uh, she cornered me one time and said, this was not that long ago, that she was tired of being terrorized by technology and she wanted to get an engineering degree. And I told her that perhaps she was too eminent to spend lots of time doing calculus problems, so she should take a few courses, which she did. And not only did she uh, enrich the courses a great deal, but she became the queen of the student shops. And in fact, recently, uh, the problem I saw Iris working on was how to manufacture an incredibly sophisticated and intricate cooking pot that she had designed. You still doing that, Iris? Nobody will make it? Back to school. Anyway, I think the breasts are truly a wonderful and a rare pair. Uh, and I, I assume that after Paul talks, we're going to have a get-together and there'll be questions. So feel free to dig deeply into him. And if that isn't satisfying, Iris will reply. <laughs> Paul, now you can clap. Thanks, Jim. Well, I, I appreciate that introduction. I actually have to, to tell the real story of what happened when Iris told Jim that she wanted to learn something about how things worked. And Jim said, well, let's go get an old car, and we'll just take, take apart the pieces, um, and we'll do it in your, in your house, in your front yard. And Iris said, well, what if I can't put them back together? And Jim said, that's OK. We'll just put it on the neighbor's property. <laughs> and for, those, for anybody who lives near Tolman Drive, you might think that's just what we're doing right now as we remodel our house. It just took a little while before we got there. Uh, what I realized coming up here is this is the first time I've been on a podium without using PowerPoint for a long time. And it's a great relief. Uh, I, I had a guest in my class last year who didn't use PowerPoint. And on the student evaluations at the end of the year, one student said, you know, with, with kind of more anger than dismay, you know, how could you have a visitor who, who wasn't using PowerPoint? Well, I, from, from the moment I accepted Ken Scott and David Abernathy's generous invitation to be here this afternoon, I felt uneasy about talking about my, my own life. I wasn't quite able to articulate the source of the unease to myself until I read a devastating review of four memoirs uh, in the New York Times book review, not this Sunday, but the Sunday before. And I'm going to read you a few uh, lines from the reviewer. 
There was a time when you had to earn a right to draft a memoir by accomplishing something noteworthy or having an extremely unusual experience, or being such a brilliant writer that you could turn relatively ordinary occurrences into a snapshot of a broader historical moment. Anyone who didn't fit one of these categories was obliged to keep quiet. Unremarkable lives went unremarked upon, the way God intended, but then came our age of oversharing. Memoirs have been disgorged by virtually everyone who's ever had cancer, been anorexic, battled depression, lost weight, by anyone who ever taught an underprivileged child, adopted an underprivileged child, or been an underprivileged child, by anyone who was raised in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, not to mention the 30s, 40s, or 50s, owned a dog, run a marathon, found religion, held a job. Pretty chastening stuff. But I'd like to draw on some shared experiences with an audience that has lived through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then some, talking from the particular perspective of my professional work with a few more or less substantive comments about the law, about legal education, about philanthropy that might stimulate our discussion afterwards. The one personal theme that runs through the talk concerns intentionality in decision making. It relates somewhat in a somewhat paradoxical and perhaps hypocritical way to a textbook I've written on problem solving and decision making. I teach a course with this title in a new master's degree program in public policy, a course that aims to instruct students on how to engage in the deliberation and empirical inquiry and planning necessary to make rational evidence-based decisions. These are also characteristics of the Hewlett Foundation's approach to philanthropy, and they describe a few, but just a few, of the important decisions that I've made in my personal life. The single most important deliberate decision and the source of most of the good outcomes since then was to ask Iris to marry me almost 50 years ago. But as I think about my life biographically, I realize it's often been propelled by decisions that were barely planned or that were based on scant empirical evidence or that were largely inertial. For the most part, things have worked out pretty well, but one of the phenomena I cover in my course is people tend, people's tendency to attribute matters of chance to their own good judgment or prowess. So the most I can say is I've generally lucked out. I went to Swarthmore College because I didn't get into Harvard. Granted that one never knows about the paths not taken, with the benefit of hindsight, I would go to Swarthmore intentionally if I had to do it over again. A liberal arts education at Swarthmore permitted postponing other choices for a while. But as I began thinking about graduate school, I contemplated a career as a musicologist until a music professor advised that I might do that or else do something I could be competent at. <laughs> I was hurt and didn't talk to him for the rest of the year, although I knew he was absolutely right. At college, some of us had picketed the Woolworth department store in Chester, Pennsylvania in solidarity with the sit-ins in the South. Somehow the idea of being a civil rights lawyer took root and I ended up at law school. Iris went to law school as well. And soon after graduation, we presented ourselves to Jack Greenberg, who was then director of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. He asked whether we'd be willing to work anywhere, and we said yes. And then for the first and perhaps the only time in our lives, we experienced the drama of somebody closing the door, telling a secretary to hold all calls. He asked whether he'd be willing to work in Jackson, Mississippi, and that's where we and our then one-year-old daughter ended up from 1966 to 1968. For many years afterwards, Hillary could put on either a black or a white southern accent as, as would be most inappropriate for the time. We worked 
with civil rights groups usually headquartered in local Baptist church, churches to try to end segregation and overt discrimination in the schools, in the workplaces, in every economic and public sphere. With more complex issues of racial justice, such as affirmative action still to come, this seemed like a pretty simple good guys, bad guys fight. We might have stayed in Mississippi longer, but chance, a chance event intervened. I got a phone call from a former law school professor asking if I would like to be the law clerk for Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harlan, and that was an offer I couldn't refuse. It was a wonderful year. Justice Harlan was a grandfather as well as a mentor to his law clerks. He was a New York patrician who was on the conservative side of the court at the time, but at a time when conservative meant exercising judicial power with great restraint uh, and with respect for the coordinate branches. He would have been appalled by the ideology and the harsh style of today's conservative wing. One of the benefits of being a Supreme Court law clerk at the time was you were courted by law firms and law schools. The idea of teaching appealed to me, and we ultimately came to Stanford despite skepticism whether there was civilization west of the Hudson River, uh, perhaps because it was so strange and exotic to New Yorkers is why we came. The law school was then at the top of the Oval, and I'm sure you can recall what it was like driving up Palm Drive for the first time. Because of the war, 1969 was anything but an exotic time to arrive at the university. The windows of the Hoover Institution had been broken so often that they were replaced with plywood. Bruce Franklin led demonstrations that ultimately resulted in his losing tenure in a trial before the faculty advisory board chaired by Don Kennedy. With a steadfast vision and a steady hand, Dick Lyman managed to keep the university true to its mission. Stanford came through that period better than many other universities. I'll fast forward through the 70s and 80s with one story. The chances are that some in this audience will recall early personal computers that used the CPM operating system. WordStar was the only word processor worth using, and it actually lasted beyond CPM into the early days of the, the IBM PC. As an early adopter, I faced the problem that WordStar had no footnoting capabilities. And if you've ever read a law review article, you know that footnotes take more real estate on the page than, than the text itself. I've always been interested in learning how things worked from the inside, so needing a word processor with footnoting capacity, Iris and I together learned how to do computer programming. We wrote the first add-on, first version of our add-on to WordStar, imaginatively called Footnote, in 88 assembly language. By coincidence, the first portable computer, the Osborne, which looked more like a little sewing machine than a laptop, came out around the same time. The Osborne Company bought a license to bundle Footnote with WordStar, and thus was born our kitchen table software company called ProTem Software. Only a few customers noted that translated into English, this suggested we were a fly-by-night company. We had heady moments. For example, because the software industry was in such a nascent stage, we once found ourselves at the same table as Microsoft at a meeting of the Software Publishers Association. We also learned something about running a small business. We exemplified the adage that if you lose money on every sale, you can't make up for it in volume. <laughs> Writing the footnoting and several other programs probably cost several articles, but in truth, I think the software was a more valuable contribution. I won't ask some of my colleagues from the law school whether they think so, too. 
since it was scholarship and teaching that Stanford paid me to do, though, let me say a word about the articles I'm most proud of. In criminal law, judges and juries always take account of individuals' motivations. Motivations are what makes the difference between negligent or reckless or intentional homicides, and of course those carry very different penalties. In constitutional law cases, however, the Supreme Court was reluctant to attribute motivations to officials and especially to legislatures and other multi-member bodies. For example, immediately after a federal court ordered the Jackson, Mississippi swimming pools closed, the city council, sorry, ordered the Jackson, Mississippi pools integrated, the um, city council ordered the pools closed indefinitely. The court declined to make the obvious connection between the events. It wasn't willfulness as much as a lack of a theory of why motivation should make a difference. My first article as an assistant professor provided a theory and may have played some role in an eventual shift in constitutional doctrine. This work also lent, led to a theory of why intentional discrimination was unconstitutional, while a law that merely had an unintended disproportionate adverse impact on racial minorities might not be. You may have heard of the term originalism, an approach to constitutional interpretation that tries to be faithful to what the framers or the adopters of the Constitution intended, an approach espoused by many members of the current Supreme Court. Well, I coined that word before most of the current justices were appointed to the court in an article whose title gives away my position. It was called The Misconceived Quest for the Original Understanding. If the race articles may have contributed some to constitutional jurisprudence, this one fell on deaf ears. Finally, I'll mention an unsuccessful project concerned with the role of legislatures and other government officials besides courts in interpreting the Constitution. After a year of struggling to make progress while a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, I abandoned the project. It left me without an immediate research agenda, but made it plausible for me to think about doing something else for a while, and that while lasted from 1987 to 1999. Being a candidate for dean of the law school wasn't just the reaction to a soured romance with a scholarly project, but it also had an intentional aspect. I had long been interested in improving legal education. In fact, several years earlier, um, I persuaded the then dean to allow me and some colleagues to teach an alternative curriculum to a portion of the first year class. One aspect of this experiment, which endured for quite a while, was a course that introduced students to lawyering skills and professional ethics. As simple as racial issues had been in the 1960s, they became complicated in the 1980s and 1990s. Paralleling postmodernism in the humanities, the legal academy developed new genres of critical legal studies with offshoots of critical race theory, gender theory, and other identity studies. On the whole, these were refreshing alternatives to traditional legal scholarship and an interesting response to the economic analysis of law, which had begun to take root in the 1960s, but with them came identity politics as well, of which Stanford Law School had plenty. Perhaps because students expected a lot from a dean who had once been a civil rights lawyer, perhaps because I was willing to talk to any group of students any time, and doubtless because I and my colleagues made our share of mistakes in navigating the, the treacherous shoals of identity politics, uh, the 1990s were marked by some truly unpleasant incidents. I recall getting a call one evening from my son Jeremy, who was then doing a JD MBA at Stanford, and he asked, so how does it feel being a Tiller the Hunt? 
And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, uh, let me read you from a flyer that's been put on all the student mailboxes. In retrospect, some of the problems were the result of my unrealistic belief in the power of rational discourse and a related over-optimism in the possibility of what negotiators call an integrative or win-win solution for all concerned. Such optimism motivates you to work harder to look for solutions to complex problems and it counsels patience, but it can also be an excuse for postponing confronting difficult situations. And there's really no optimal solution when an African-American faculty member believes that she was denied tenure because of her race and gender. If these were some of the darker moments in my deanship, they were more than compensated for in other ways. As you know, the single most important determinant of any academic institution's quality is the quality of the faculty, and it takes money to recruit faculty in a competitive market. But Stanford Law School's salary had fallen below those of our peer schools. I came to the deanship knowing nothing about development, but it didn't take me long to realize that the school's fundraising had been abysmal and that our development office was not up to the task of improving it. Within a year, I recruited a new development director, and together we rebuilt the staff and launched a major campaign. Given Stanford's fundraising history, the law school's fundraising history, the Board of Trustees understandably thought that our goal of $50 million in five years was a stretch, but they eventually acquiesced, and as it turned out, we topped $75 million. If you had asked any of my colleagues, or for that matter, asked me whether I'd be good at fundraising, the answer surely would have been no. But if you really care about an institution, you can find a style that works for you. Necessity, it turns out, is the mother of reinvention, of reinventing oneself. The work was strategic and relentless and satisfying. It was also a bit morally complex, as I think a number of you who have done fundraising know. You develop close relationships, sometimes real friendships, with major donors, but at least in the back of your mind, almost every interaction has a strategic aspect. Some of you may recall that these were also the days of budget reductions, though nothing as drastic as the university has faced in the last several years. One of the conditions set by the alumni who served as campaign chairs was that subject to the usual overhead charges, the law school got to keep the money we raised. We thought we had a deal to this effect with the provost, then Condoleezza Rice, but as the campaign got underway, we saw that the university was reducing its general allocations to the school in some proportion to what we were raising. This led to my one and only fight with Condi, an excellent pianist with whom I had begun to play chamber music. We were scheduled to read the Schumann Piano Quintet, which has a portion of a movement labeled agitato, after a particularly heated email exchange, Condi called and said we'd better settle our budget matter before we became any more agitated. I'll leave it to your imagination who won the battle. In any event, we both backed down and have been chamber music companions and friends ever since. As with all professional schools, law schools are a hybrid of scholarship and preparing students for the, for the profession with scholarship playing the dominant role in faculty members and in the school's reputations. The past four decades have seen some significant advances in preparing students for law practice through simulated clinical exercises and supervised practice. But this is done largely by non-tenured faculty. And as everyone here knows, universities are extremely hierarchical institutions. I think the military has far more, more mobility than a university does with power residing in the regular faculty. 
Until the 1970s, the dominant form of legal scholarship centered around the analysis of appellate cases, a curious mixture of descriptive and normative work that when brought into the classroom at least trained students to be appellate lawyers, although it was really aimed at training them to be judges. Law teachers still do this, and they teach professionally oriented substantive courses in areas like employment law and securities and intellectual property law. But perhaps ironically, the increasing breadth and sophisticated of legal in breadth and sophistication of legal scholarship to encompass the social sciences and social theory has deepened the divide between scholarship and practice. There are promising intersections here, but uh, the divide still seems large. In any event, after 12 years of being dean, I thought it was time to return to the classroom. When I told then-President Gerhard Casper about my intentions, he said with characteristic directness, that makes sense. After all these years, the faculty deserve a break. <laughs> My plan was to continue developing the course that I had begun teaching in problem solving and decision making, which aspired to help bridge the theory practice gap, at least a bit. By coincidence, I knew quite a few members of the Hewlett Foundation board. I played chamber music with Walter Hewlett, as well as Condi, who was then on the board. Jim Gaither had shared the law school's campaign and Harat Kachadurian was an old friend. But I had little idea what the foundation did, let alone about philanthropy more generally. When I was asked if I would meet with a few board members to talk about the foundation's future, I thought, why not? And we had a far-ranging, long conversation during which I learned that they were looking for a new president and thought that I might fill the job. Several hours later, I still didn't know anything about philanthropy, but I remember calling Iris Wright afterwards and saying, I wanted this job. It turned out the feeling was mutual. Another decision made, at least on my part, in the absence of deliberation, but it's turned out to be even a more rewarding job than I could have imagined. In 2000, only a few months into the job, I began noticing that Stanford Law School alumni who used to evade my calls when I was dean were now calling me. <laughs> and that several former students uh, and several faculty members who'd been mad at me when I was dean uh, suddenly became very nice and interested in my new work. Just as I was beginning to think I had undergone a transformational moral change, I received a framed Yiddish proverb from a colleague at a New York foundation. With money in your pocket, you are wise and you are handsome and you sing well too. <laughs> so much for the personal transformation. Uh, it's true, by the way, that, that giving away money can go to your head. That's one of the reasons the Hewlett Foundation has a term limit, a sort of anti-tenure policy for, for program officers. In retrospect, my ignorance about philanthropy may have turned out to be an advantage, analogous to my ignorance about development when I became dean. I didn't come to the foundation with an agenda, but rather learned by observing and listening. And I remember Harant some wonderful long walks around Lagunita, in which, which you helped me on this. While I lacked expertise in the Hewlett Foundation's area of grant making, I brought reasonably good analytic skills to the job, as well as a broad curiosity. The style of management that I had developed at the law school and brought to the foundation is what some business writers called management by walking around, an approach coincidentally associated with the Hewlett-Packard company under Bill Hewlett and, and David Packard's management. So I walked around and had lots of meetings with the foundation staff. The program officers were extremely knowledgeable in their fields of expertise, but with few exceptions, they had difficulty articulating their ultimate goals. 
A watershed moment for me was when, at my request, the Environment Program convened a number of organizations doing work in the American West. The grantees were hardworking and dedicated, and their activities centered around convening meetings among ranchers and developers and environmentalists. As much as I pressed them, however, to say what they hoped would come out of these meetings, I couldn't get a clear answer. Lots of process, but very little substance. I ended up having essentially one idea, which has come to define the Foundation's approach over the past decade. Sometimes it goes under the name strategic philanthropy, although increasingly I just like the notion of outcome-oriented philanthropy. It's simply the idea that foundations and the organizations they support should be clear about their goals, about how they plan to achieve those goals, and how they will know if they're making progress. As the foundation's funding to reduce global warming and our support for Stanford and UC Berkeley indicate, outcome orientation doesn't mean short-term or narrow goals, but it does require that we and the organizations we support marshal our inevitably limited resources effectively to really make a difference in society, or at least to have a shot at it in the case of climate change. In the course of moving to an outcome-oriented approach, we've made our share of mistakes. We sometimes have pressed ourselves and our grantees for more precision, for a degree of precision that turned out to be unrealistic. But until you've hit a wall, you don't know where the wall is. And while it remains a work in progress, I think we're on our way to getting that right. Large foundations with program staffs are positioned to take risks by supporting promising but untested strategies that may not pan out, but that have great social value if they do. For example, in climate change or education or um, global development. If you're taking risks in this way, then unless you have an amazingly long lucky streak, you're going to have failures. But failure is almost a dirty word in the world of philanthropy and of nonprofits more generally. Uh, though this was as true at the Hewlett Foundation as at any other institution, it has changed as part of an overall change in our culture. About five years ago, I instituted a contest in which each program was encouraged to nominate the worst grant of the last year from which you learned the most. <laughs> Initially, as you might imagine, this was met with skepticism and required some cajoling. By last year, some programs put on video presentations and skits in order to win the award. The motivation was certainly not the prize, which was a free lunch for the, the program that won the award, but rather an acknowledgment of the inevitability of failures and the importance of learning from them. I'll take some credit for guiding the foundation towards more effective philanthropy with two qualifications. One is that while the Hewlett Foundation has been a leader in the movement toward outcome-oriented philanthropy, we haven't worked in a vacuum. The field as a whole was moving in this direction. The zeitgeist plays a role in all social change, and you, you can't beat the zeitgeist. Second, my role has been that of a generalist problem solver and strategist. The most important decisions I've made as president of the foundation are hiring people who are truly experts in their fields, then asking tough questions, but ultimately respecting their judgments. For an essentially impatient person who sometimes thinks he has all the answers, this has required some letting go. But though gentle, but through gentle and persistent nudging in a culture of peer learning, the foundation has developed an outcome-oriented approach that pervades our grant making. The cliche 
of learning from failure has been true not just of the foundation's grant making, but of my personal and professional development. Learning from failure requires being open to criticism about one's own decisions, yet we've all seen people who ignore negative feedback or kill the messenger in order to avoid hearing it. That's not a great formula for successful leadership. An ideal leader would not be defensive about his decisions. And I know some people who are genuinely non-defensive. I'm not among them. My impulse is to argue back. And what I've learned over time is reasonably well not to act defensively. Biting your tongue can be quite painful, but it does keep the valuable information coming to you. I began by mentioning Iris's role in my life. Let me end by describing the impact that our two children and five grandchildren are having my, on my outlook for the future. As much joy as they bring me, imagining the world as their future unfolds over the next decades does not bring happy thoughts. We're leaving them with a pretty terrible world in terms of the economy, in terms of global security, in terms of the environment. None of these problems is intractable, but I'm increasingly skeptical about the capacity of present citizens, even in democratic societies, to address them. There are at least two obstacles. One is the pervasive absence of critical thinking skills and the rudiments of evidence-based decision-making among citizens and our elected representatives. The Hewlett Foundation is making some efforts to address these problems through K, in K-12 education, but the challenges are vast. The second obstacle is people's unwillingness to pay today for benefits that only accrue in the long term, a tendency that is amplified when the long term involves future generations not yet in existence. I teach the research on this in my judgment and decision-making course. Unfortunately, the tendency seems to be hardwired, and no one has yet come up with robust strategies to counteract the bias. Not too long from now, my term as president of the Hewlett Foundation will come to an end for the same reason that Gerhardt gave when I resigned as dean. The staff, and perhaps even more, our grantees deserve a break. When this happens, I hope to continue to address these problems in the classroom as well as in research. But I think I've said, talked enough for one afternoon. So I appreciate your inviting me, and I'd be happy to respond to any questions or comments, particularly concerning philanthropy, but about the law as well. Thank you. Feigenbaum, Computer Science. Uh, I have a, a novelist friend, co-author co of some books with me, um, whose latest novel is about uh, the difficulties of being a philanthropist. And uh, I presume, although she hasn't shown me the manuscript, I presume that uh, being, if it's a good novel, it has characters in it who uh, go through trials and tribulations and uh, then eventually master them. Uh, what, is, what are your major, like, one or two or three trials and tribulations as a philanthropist? Well, I should say, for, some people in the field draw a distinction which I think is helpful between philanthropists who are giving away their own money and what they call philanthropoids who are giving away somebody else's money. 
And my guess is being a philanthropist where it's your own money has particular trials and tribulations. But I'll, I'll talk about the challenges of, of giving away, uh, in this case, the, the accumulated wealth of, of Bill Hewlett or the, the income from his endowment. Uh, so I, mean, I, I alluded to it in my talk. I think the major challenge is how to give the, away the money in a way that is going to be socially effective. Right? So different philanthropists or different foundations have widely different goals. For the Hewlett Foundation, <clears throat> our goals involve education, the environment, including climate, uh, population and global development, and performing arts in the Bay Area. Whereas there are other foundations that have completely different and non-overlapping goals. I think the biggest challenge is that whatever, whatever your objectives are, to make grants in a way that are going to achieve the objectives and that you and the organizations you give to are going to know over time when they do. So if you're supporting a performing arts organization, it's not necessarily to support the organization that has the biggest audience. Indeed, in the Bay Area, we think about our work in the performing arts as supporting an ecosystem of organizations, some of which are small, edgy organizations that if they get 40 people to a performance are doing very well. And on the other end are, is the symphony and the opera. But we need to have a sense of what we're trying to accomplish when we do that. Uh, supporting universities is the same thing. Uh, we, don't, we don't micromanage when we made the, the grant to H&S and undergraduate education at Stanford or, or the grant to UC Berkeley. The last thing we want to do is, is tell university presidents and deans what to do. What we do want to ask them is, you tell us what you plan to do with it and how you plan to be effective in the long run. Uh, and with universities, it's not short run work either. And then there's work, uh, I'll take something which is more specific, as in, as in uh, trying to reduce global warming. There are grants, are what we ask of an organization is that they have strategies which, even though we know that the likelihood of keeping the temperature from rising more than several degrees at this point is it's not very high, the likelihood is not high, that we want to see that they have strategies that have a good shot of doing it. And we actually think of our grant making, and this is where I said we, we, we hit a wall from time to time and knew where it was, in terms of expected return. That is, we, we're putting in certain money, we're taking risk, and certainly trying to change uh, the global temperatures is, is high risk in the sense of a likelihood of not achieving it. But we want some sense that the investment we're making uh, actually has a good return when adjusted for risk. So I think thinking through those questions and then actually monitoring and evaluating whether the grants are making a difference is the most challenging work that I see for us. Terrible to have to go to the mic with warnings from your wife. Uh, Something you said interested me, and it had to do with your, your kid and your worry about the future. And as far back as I can remember, as people got older, they became less optimistic about the future. And I spent a lot of time when I think the world's going to hell, how much the world is going to hell and how much I'm getting older. 
Is anybody studying that, if it is a phenomena? I mean, like for instance, does, is your kid think the same way you do, or is your kid just acting like you did at that age? You follow me? Right, that is to say, the, the counter to my claim is that, that everybody who reaches their 70s kind of thinks, when, whenever they existed, you know, 1200 or 1900 or now, thinks that things really look very bleak for their children. Uh, I don't know, and there are historians here probably who, who have a better fix on that. I do think, you know, issues of, maybe issues of global security come and go. I mean, somebody who, who was thinking about World War I or World War II in the offing couldn't have been very optimistic about the world. Uh, the economy, uh, world economy rises and falls. I guess I think that there are two issues uh, that look very different. One is climate change. That is, if, if you believe what is certainly the dominant uh, view of scientists, climate scientists, uh, then the world is going to change uh, in a dramatic way. Uh, there are places uh, near sea level that will be under sea level. There'll be winners and losers, there always are. And in the worst case, the winners are rats and cockroaches that will, will outlast all of us. But um, that's one change. I also think that on the security issue, that we have not before encountered the potential uh, where a group of individuals could get a hold of nuclear material uh, that could, could do devastation uh, on the level. Now, once again, it could be that once people moved from having you know, slingshots to guns, they thought the same thing. And I, you know, it's, it's a, a chastening comment to think maybe everyone's thought it was always going to be bad. I, I think on those issues, it seems to me particularly dangerous these days. Globalization. You know, globalization, we've, we've had versions of globalization at various times. I actually think globalization is a, you know, is neither good nor bad. I think it has tremendous forces for good. It's, it's the notion that somebody could wipe out human life, or at least wipe out human life, in a number of places where there are many humans uh, that, that worries me. Yeah, I'm, I'm Dick Scott, and I'm one of these people you mentioned who spent their life ask, asking for money instead of uh, giving it away. Uh, and I've noticed a, a trend over the 50 years that I've been asking for money. And that is you used to ask for money and they say, what do you want it for? And you get to tell them. But now increasingly they give you the agenda for what it is you need to do. Uh, foundations, I think, increasingly have their own professional staff with their own agenda. And the result is you find yourself negotiating what it is you want to study and how you want to study it in ways that I think are very often uh, perverse. I know the uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation <clears throat> uh, made big headlines because they had a program called Investigator Initiated Awards. And that means we tell you what we'd like to study and then they decide if it's worthwhile or not. As opposed to, here is our agenda, uh, how are you going to pursue it for us? So let, let me draw several different categories. On the one hand, to use the example once again of, of our grant and other foundations have made grants like this to H&S at Stanford. The foundation 
doesn't tell anyone what to do with it. It is, it is the dean of humanities and science and, and then department chairs and others who, who decide how to allocate those funds. And some of those are used for research and um, the foundation exercises no control. Indeed, I think it would be counterproductive for a foundation to exercise control over that kind of grant or a grant, similar grant that we made to UC Berkeley, because what you're, bank, what you're betting on with the university is that bright and committed faculty left to their own devices and deciding what they want to investigate are going to lead to some great breakthroughs, right? A lot of won't, but every once in a while you will have one and no foundation could predict uh, what they would be and if foundation tried to direct them, it would fail. The other end of the spectrum is when we actually are trying to change policy in a particular area, such as climate change, such as an attempt which has not been very successful in changing educational policy in California, where we have particular research we need to be done. That is, we're not at, we're, we don't go to a research and say, do we anything you want? We say, we actually need to know what are the consequences of this particular plan for financing education on educational outcomes for particular kids. And in that situation, we're very directive. We're, we're essentially buying the research. And, and then, then, then there's the middle ground of where a researcher is doing work in an area that the foundation deems valuable. And do you kind of give the, give the researcher wide latitude uh, and how wide? I think you're right that over time foundations in that middle area, that middle area has become more constricted um, and that foundations tend more and more to direct uh, research to, to particular issues they want. And I think on the whole, we should probably broaden that area. But I also think that what foundations have a legitimate expectation of is even if you're doing your own research, uh, we want to know what you're accomplishing. And what we like to do with the researcher is, in effect, have an agreement that this is your project, but we're going to hold you to, to the terms that, that you think are reasonable in terms of outcomes. Iris. Paul, you've been very uh, generous as a, as a philanthropist and an educator and a leader in many ways. The role in which I know you best is as a member of a board, as a director. And I wonder, since you sit on other boards, whether you might comment on the uh, relative effectiveness of that activity for you and the differential satisfaction that you've derived from that kind of activity versus some of the others that you've commented on? Of, of, the, of sitting on boards. So the, the only real mistake I made uh, with board membership, and I, I say this with, with tremendous deference to, to Gerhard and, and others who have had to deal with university boards, was serving on a university board, not, not Stanford. Um, because I thought I didn't make any difference. Board meetings at this university, and I think it's true of many, were largely dog and pony shows where you came for a couple of days 
and there were presentations by faculty and staff, and um, you learned a lot. I, I learned a lot, actually, about some substantive areas of this university, but I felt I didn't contribute. Um, and this was a university that didn't use committees very well. I think the place where one can contribute on a board of 40 or 50 people is, is probably at the committee level. The boards where I felt I've added some value um, have been boards of small startup organizations. By the way, I should say the Hewlett Foundation doesn't tend to put itself on the boards of grantees. Uh, when we do, we only do it where we think we can add some value because, uh, first of all, we think there's a, on the whole, a healthy separation between the funders and the grantees, but also there's just not enough time to do the other work and be on boards. The, the two boards that I think I, I feel I've added value to are two startups uh, where there was real need, not for somebody who knew the substance, which the staff did, but for some help in organization and management, which my experience as dean and to some extent my experience as president of the Hewlett Foundation provided. Um, I regard my, my time on the advisory board for the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences as um, it's hardly a startup. And one of the things that I find so much fun being on that board is that almost everybody there has expertise they're contributing. It's not a, not a fragile organization the way some of the, the couple of nonprofits that I've been on the board are. So I mean, I, I think there, there's something called venture philanthropy. Venture philanthropy has lots of different meanings, but somebody I met a number of years ago called it engaged philanthropy. And it was analogous to being a venture capitalist. And every time you made, this was every time his foundation made a grant, he or somebody else would put themselves on the board. And I, I asked at one point, maybe not more politely than this, are you putting yourself on the board because you really think it's going to add value to the organization or because it's something to do with your time? In the real world of venture capital, venture capitalists have a constraint. They, they're not going to put themselves on the board unless they think it's going to add value. Um, the danger, and this goes back to the question about um, philanthropists, and especially philanthropists who retire at an early age because they've made a fortune and have time on their hands, uh, you just want to make sure that if they, if they start meddling in one way or another with their grantees, that they're doing it because they actually think they're adding value rather than, than as a leisure time activity. I've noticed an increasing number of foundations deciding to spend themselves out rather than being in perpetuity foundations. I assume Hewlett Packard is in the latter, I mean Hewlett is in the latter category. But I wonder if you'd comment on that. It's a little bit the same as an individual philanthropist <clears throat> deciding whether to give an expendable gift or a gift to endowment. Yeah, I, I think there's probably an increase in the number of foundations that are spending down uh, rather than giving in perpetuity. And I think, but I'm, I'm not sure what the trend is, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what the rationales going both ways are. I, mean, there, I think there are essentially two reasons to spend down. One is you don't trust uh, whoever's coming next to fulfill whatever your interests are in their grant making. 
Uh, people use the Ford Foundation, but I think it's an unfair example as, as sort of the, the bete noir in this case. Whereas you know, thinking that, that the Ford family never would have wanted to engage in the kind of liberal philanthropy that the Ford Foundation engages in. Uh, I don't know whether that's right or not, but I do know that, that that's a concern in any event. I think there's a second reason uh, that appeals to me more. And it comes, let me come back to the issue that, that Jim and I were talking about, about kind of pending global catastrophes. If you believe that um, catastrophic climate change could happen in the next 10 or 20 years, and that it could affect the world forever after, then you ought to put all your money right now into doing it rather than just 5% of your endowment. Right? The Hewlett Foundation is not committed to lasting in perpetuity, but I think that was its founder's expectation. And we are, we are spending you know, roughly 5% of our endowment, which can basically keeps the spending power of the endowment. But I think, I think that if there are problems that you think are going to get worse and worse and worse year after year after year, and you think this is the time to address them, then it's a good reason for spending down. The reason for maintaining the money in perpetuity, other than if one's interested in a family foundations, children and grandchildren being involved, is thinking, yeah, these are important problems, but back to Jim's point, we may not have the answers now, so let's, let's leave some money for the next generation to try to solve this problem. Perrant was my board member, so he's, he's now going to take me to task. <laughs> no, no, actually not. I'm not even going to ask a question. I just want to say that in addition to the many accomplishments uh, that I have seen in the Hewlett Foundation under Paul's leadership, he has turned that foundation into the best possible place to work. And I think that's almost harder than running an efficient organization. Well, that, that's, that's a kind remark, and I'll just say kind of a, a philosophical point I have about any organization. I mean, every organization ultimately has the outcomes it wants to achieve, whether it's a law school or, or a foundation or a factory. But the people who work for us spend much of their waking hours uh, at these organizations, and I think part of our mission has to be to make it a, a enjoyable and productive workplace for them. I think any, you know, you can justify this in terms of any institution that doesn't do this is going to lose its effectiveness in the long run. But I actually think it's, it's a end in itself also, making, making it a place where people enjoy, enjoy spending their day. I don't make every, everybody's day happy. <laughs> what is the expected outcome of the autobiographical reflection series sponsored by the Maritime Council. We hope we find individuals of distinguished background who would talk about their own lives in a way that told us something we didn't know, who would then reflect through their own personal and professional experience about issues well beyond themselves. Was this outcome achieved today? Yes. Of course it has been. Uh, because with Paul and through Paul, we've heard a bit about himself, we've heard a bit about the law school, about Stanford, 
about foundations, about money, about the future, about concerns that we many of us share. Uh, that was pretty much the outcome we had in mind. And so I'm happy to report that uh, this was a very successful afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. I just have to have the final word and say the Hewlett Foundation would never accept an evaluation done in this situation. <laughs> For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.